Coming up, theologian Leah Schweitz and sociologist Felicia Wu Song, two deep thinkers on the ways technology can and does shape our daily and spiritual practices. After the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello and welcome back. I'm Dan, your host and the Director of University Engagement here at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. We wish you all a happy Thanksgiving next week. The weather here in Madison has definitely taken a turn to the cold after a really unseasonably warm fall. And we hope and we pray that wherever you are, that you're able to spend the holiday season enjoying the outside, if, if you're in a place that allows that, uh, and with family. So in this episode, we're continuing a theme of sorts from the last few episodes of featuring conversations between two new voices, neither of which are on the Upper House staff. The staff continues to record interviews with interesting guests for future episodes, but we're also eager to share share the load with talented and interesting interviewers in our midst. And today's conversation falls into that category as we listen in on just a really interesting expert-level conversation between Leah Schweitz and Felicia Wu Song. So before introducing Leah and Felicia, just a note about why they were both at Upper House. A couple weeks ago, Upper House hosted a small gathering for leaders of Christian study centers, ministries that do similar work to Upper House at other universities across the country. This gathering was part of a series of events funded by the John Templeton Foundation. Leah has served as our theologian in residence for the Templeton grant that we have and for these gatherings. And Felicia is a leading expert on the theme of the gathering that we had, wisdom and technology. Both of them gave talks at the gathering and then found time for the conversation you're about to hear. It covers Felicia's journey into the field of sociology and the bundle of issues she studies related to technology, personhood, and spiritual practices. It also covers her new book from InterVarsity Press, Restless Devices, Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age. And that book releases in just a couple weeks at uh, the end of November. So now to introduce Felicia and Leah. Felicia Wusong got her PhD at the University of Virginia, and she's a cultural sociologist of media and digital technologies. She's a professor of sociology at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. Her publications include the aforementioned Restless Devices, uh, but also Virtual Communities, Bowling Alone, Online Together, and other articles in such scholarly journals as Gender and Society and Information, Communication, and Society. Leah Schweitz earned her PhD at the University of Chicago, and in addition to partnering with Upper House for the Higher Pursuits Project, she's the co-founder of Nature 120, a nonprofit organization that provides nature play and airway therapy for children on Chicago's west side and in the western suburbs. She's also the director of children's education for Yorkfield Presbyterian Church. And previously, she was a tenured professor at the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago and directed the Zygon Center for Religion and Science. 
So with those introductions out of the way, let's head to the interview. Here's an upwards conversation between Leah Schweitz and Felicia Wu Song. Leah is the first person you'll hear, followed by Felicia. All right. So the first question that I have for you, I was trying to think of a delicate way to ask it, but uh, maybe it doesn't have to be. So your, your biography says sociologist, Christian, and digital technologies. And that's a rather curious combination, maybe not quite like oil and water, but it's not that those three things kind of naturally come together um, when you think any one of the others. So could you connect the dots for us a little bit? Maybe say something about like your vocational path, how it is you kind of got to this, got to this place? After college, um, I read a book by Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Um, that was my first time with the text. And in the book, Postman um, talks about the ways that mass media um, forms us, not in the actual content of what we're watching, but there's something about the form of the technology, the medium of the technology that is actually shaping the ways that we perceive reality um, and experience reality. And um, I had never heard or read anyone talking about um, a part of my lived experience that I was observing, but but never hearing anyone talk about. Um, after college for me was right when email was starting to become mainstream. And um, I was working at an organization, well, I was working at school that was handing out email accounts to their boarding school students. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is funny. Um, here's this um, incredible technology um, that is changing the ways that these students are interacting with each other. And we're not having any public, collective conversation about it. And it was a boarding school environment, so it was residential. And so I was just perplexed and astonished by Postman's book and thought, I need to go back to grad school to understand this. Some people are actually writing on this. There must be something out there for me to learn. Um, part of that process of going to graduate school was also a piece of my own journey of discovering that I could bring my full self, including my faith and my theological convictions, to the table when I thought about any topic in the world. And that was new to me after college. And up until then, my faith was mainly kind of a personal piety um, focus. And so... Um, with some experience and exposure to Francis Schaeffer and Labrie Fellowship um, and their conviction that there is a, a lordship over all things, kind of reformed perspective, that was exciting um, and igniting my imagination about what could be said about mass media and how it was impacting the ways that we live. Um, so that's kind of how it started. Um, and it all seemed to make sense at the time. Yeah, it's those windy paths sometimes, uh, as you kind of follow the trail, they, at least for sure in hindsight, they 
they make sense. They tell, tell the story. How did you land specifically in sociology as the way to investigate these questions and bring your kind of Christian faith into, into the conversation? Yeah, that was a bit serendipitous. Um, I was a history major as an undergraduate, and I was actually interested in cultural and intellectual histories at the time when I started thinking about graduate school. But I was also really invested in trying to find a program where I could work with a professor and scholar who would possibly even mentor me as a Christian scholar. And so I had my eyes out on what other Christian academics were in or who were teaching and and really investing in their students, their graduate students. And so I ended up in sociology in large part because through a number of connections, I discovered James Davison Hunter down at University of Virginia and learned of his interest in really cultivating an intellectual community of scholars uh, down in Charlottesville. And so what I found in sociology was actually um, a discipline that allowed me to investigate how meaning gets constructed, which is what I was interested in, even with cultural and intellectual history, but just coming at it from a slightly different, uh, with a slightly set of different set of tools, um, but still allowing me to ask questions about how do we develop our conceptions of community, of relationship, of identity? Where does that come from? And how is that structurally embedded um, in our environments and our lived experience? So, okay, so that's, those are some of the, like, how you got to here. But we'll get to, I want to talk for sure about the, uh, this great new book that's coming out as well. But what is it now that, like, what questions keep you up at night now? Like, what are the questions that are really, like, motivating the scholarship um, that, that you're working on now, which like, you know, if you had all the time in the world, what are the, if you were to take those three things that you're, you're holding together, like what is it that's motivating you and kind of keeping you, keeping you up? What are you thinking in? Oh, that's a good question. Um, um, getting a chance to write for a Christian audience because I teach at a Christian school um, has opened up a set of questions that I kind of had to set to the side or or at least had to be secondary or personal in nature when I was still teaching in secular um, university settings. Um, So I do find my thoughts uh, moving towards broader questions of Christian formation and spirituality. That is, you know, uh, in particular, um, what does formation and spirituality look like in, in very specific time periods? Um, and what is the relationship between practices and um, encounters with the, the milieu or the age that one lives in? But I'm all, you know, so that's sort of like an abstract sort of question. Um, really practically, you know, I think the the pandemic and all of the adjustments we've had to make in our communal and social lives and church lives has also raised very interesting questions in my mind about, well, what does it mean to gather together in our embodied selves? Um, How is it distinct really from the virtual settings that so many of us had had to occupy? And these are questions I've thought about before in the abstract, 
Um, and virtual churches aren't new concepts. They've been around. But I think my interest is less in, oh, what could virtual church look like? Is that okay? Um, and more in what is it, like, how can we actually lean into the embodiment dimensions of our, our in-person gatherings? Like, what are we actually missing out on um, so that we don't simply replicate what could be done on YouTube? You know, there's something really dynamic um, that we could be exploring. So I guess questions about embodiment and, and aspects of our embodiment that we haven't really taken advantage of or really even understand in some ways. Yeah, in some ways the pandemic has pushed the, like, should we, can we, into a totally different, like, yeah. it's, that's uh, that's not the question anymore, right? It's, right? it's really how to, like, live with our whole persons into this space mm-hmm. uh, and and a future that we can't yet even predict, right? Okay, so um, let's turn here to the to this uh, new book that's coming out, um, Restless Devices, Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in a Digital Age. And because it's coming out soon, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, um, but we're here at this conference together, so there's been, I guess, a peek, a little preview that we got at the conference, but I'm hoping, could you share a little of the, like, the main key insights, like some of the things you'd love for us to be able to know and take away from this book that's coming out? Um, so the book is really written for the reader who is tired, um, who is exhausted by the their digital lives um, and really um, don't really know what to do about it. Um, and it's also written for those who might have opportunities to be in leadership, uh, who are taking care of people who are tired. Um, and thinking about, in particular, um, in the Christian context, what Christian resources are actually available. And so the first half of the book is uh, an attempt to really equip the reader with understanding why we are so tired. That is, that it's not just a, an indication of moral failure or lack of trying um, to adapt, um, but that it's actually, we, we're living in a time in a, in a system that is structured in a very particular way um, that is powerful and commercial in nature um, and that it's important for us to just know the water that we're actually swimming in. And so that's the sociological diagnosis is just to say, hey, let's just pull back a little bit, see what's really happening to understand why it's so frustrating and exhausting. And then the second half is... A, I guess the prescription piece, um, which is to say, hey, let's let's do a little uh, scratch the surface of some theological um, categories that we could be thinking about, um, what it means to be human in relation to God, um, and what would it mean for us to first assert that um, we were made for communion with God, and then from that starting point, work out implications of, well, okay, if, if that's actually how we were made, right? Not just like, oh, we should pray more or that to be a good person, I should be doing these things, but actually believing, well, this is actually what humanity is. Then it has certain implications for how we spend our time, how we embody ourselves in the spaces that we are in or with the people that we encounter and offer some pretty practical um, ideas about um, how we might make some adjustments in our digital practices 
especially if we can think of them in terms of liturgy. Um, because we, we do have ways of thinking about habits and liturgies already. We just need to apply them in this part of our lives. Yeah, um, I want to come back to that, the practical pieces for sure. Uh, but uh, hearing you talk about the diagnosis again as um, one of tiredness and exhaustion, I mean, I know I definitely feel very seen in that. That seems like a, an apt sociological diagnosis. Uh, and it, it puts a lot of pressure, I think, on the, the restless part of the title. And um, why don't, could you unpack a little more? Like, what are the, like, what are the symptoms? What, like, how do you, how does the restlessness and the tiredness that's part of the diagnosis, like really show up? Like, what do you see in your students or in some of the, you know, the folks that you're mentoring or in your data sets? Um, like, how does that, how does that show up? Like, what's the flavor of, of the evidence, right? Because I think that that helps us, um, you know, so again, like when you're, when you're so swimming in it, again, myself included, um, just to have it named um, is really, is really helpful. So what is the, like, reflective piece? How, well, how did you see that tiredness show up? Thinking about my students, um, I get to teach a course in Internet and Society every year or every two years, and it's a wonderful and honor honoring experience to be able to listen to my students and hear them express the ways in which, um, while they love their technologies, they love the music, they love the entertainment, they love the sense of connection they can have with family and friends. It is also a technology that they feel tethered and trapped by because of the ways in which the technology makes them accessible and on call to their friends and families and work obligations all the time, 24-7. And so in some ways, the lives that first responders and surgeons and and um, other folks who lived by the beeper in the past, um, live. we all live that way now. Um, and at least in most of those professions, they still had certain days off. Right. Um, <laughs> we don't have any days off now. Rest less, right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so a lot of it is, is the ways in which the technologies or the mediation and accessible quality of the technologies has made us all kind of vulnerable to a constant sense of obligation. Um, And, you know, a lot of those obligations are healthy and they're wonderful. Um, But um, when you're getting texts from a friend at 3 o'clock in the morning um, because they have a problem and you're texting them under your covers, right, that, that is literally exhausting. I think there's also a sense of exhaustion in terms of people's felt sense of needing to keep up And so keeping up with all the latest TikToks and Snapchats and making sure you're keeping up, you know, responding, uh, keeping up the kind of reciprocity that a lot of the social media platforms um, encourage and reward um, takes time and energy. Um, And a lot of it's fun. A lot of it is rewarding, um, but it is also something that is ever-changing and that one all you, you have to stay vigilant. And so it requires a kind of vigilance that is also part of the restlessness. You always know something is coming. And then I guess the last thing I'll mention is just um, the fact that these devices are built to create restlessness in us. Um, they're designed um, to motivate us to um, train us, train our brains towards seeking out um, the stimulation or 
seeking out the the even the sensation of stress uh, to be outraged um, or to be upset um, by some of the latest news. Right? All of that has been not just unintended consequences, but actually dynamics that uh, the tech industry knew um, knows is what motivates us. Um, and so the platforms and services we're on are, are very much bent on creating a kind of appetite in us so that we'll keep showing up. Yeah, can you say a little more? Because, I mean, this, I think, leans into the ways in which some of some of the engagement that we have with our technologies and the ways in which they can uh, they can have us be restless in this like multifaceted, both like twitchy and without without rest, right? Like both yeah. both sides of it. But there's a newness to the way in which this technology is really designed. And um, can you can you talk, can you say a little more about how how it is the kind of addictive appetite, the way that some of the technologies really are built to keep keep us keep us moving, right? Keep us moving. The tech industry has well once they realized that the business model that would generate revenue was through advertising and that what they needed then was to get eyeballs on their platforms, then their question or the challenge for them to solve was, okay, how do we get eyeballs all the time? Um, And so they hired behavioral psychologists. They hired consultants who design casinos who understand um, the the physiology and the brain, brain science behind the dopamine pleasure pathways, the levels of cortisol that stream through our bodies, and um, and, and pretty, you know, basic Pavlovian, you know, B.F. Skinner box level, you know, the rat will keep pressing the lever um, for the pellet if you give them what's called intermittent reward, right? Like every time they press the pellet, they don't necessarily get the reward, but it's only kind of random, right? And so every time we kind of thumb, you know, we scroll down to refresh our social media feeds, right? And that's us, you know, we're pressing the lever <laughs> for the latest pellet. And so it's just that that, that knowledge um, has become a part of an entire industry, quite frankly, you know, being taught, behavioral design is taught, um, as as a strategy of persuasion um, for these applications, and that's you know that's social media, that's our gaming apps, that's all different kinds of apps that are designed uh, very intentionally. Uh, the colors that are chosen, the shapes of badges, the kind, the ways that notifications are um, presented to us, all of that is very carefully selected, and then the algorithms that are built. Um, that are based on the data they gather on us, you know, when we receive a certain kind of post, when we receive this video or that video, you know, how the recommendations work. All of that is calculated um, with extreme precision and care and with insights into uh, our our patterns of of usage, um, even in some cases, what emotional states we seem to indicate, depending on how we're using our technologies. Um, it took me a long time. I forget um, where I read this. Well, well, first, I, Eli Pariser talks about how when we are on Google and we're searching for anything, we tend to think that whatever we're getting from the search is just what anybody else would get. 
from searching squirrel or, or um, you know, chocolate. Um, but Parazer talks about, right, that even our Google searches are algorithmically based. And so we get really different kinds of things based on our algorithms. I've done the experiment with Amazon. Uh, I sit down with my spouse and we type in the same objects um, and they come up with different prices because of our different accounts. And it's the same with social media that when we receive posts, um, I used to think that it was just um, being posted in real time, but it's not. It's actually algorithmically based. And so all of that is designed to... um, keep us on the platforms, uh, kind of stir the fires um, so our appetites keep, uh, keep us coming back. And I think, you know, for some of us, when we learn that, we might get somewhat upset because we feel like it's manipulative. Um, for others, and certainly for a lot of my students, you know, there's a little bit of ambivalence of just like, well, I know that's happening, but I'm getting what I want. I'm getting what I like. So it's not really a problem. Um, But I think there is something about um, what Jaron Lanier calls the behavioral modification process that is unsettling. Um, And I think we see that, um, you know, it's one thing to to think about it in terms of, you know, pure entertainment, you know, like uh, the the programs that we want to watch or the random uh, consumer preferences we might have. But when we get into the area of, of political polarization, when we get into the areas of racial turmoil and the ways in which you see real-life uh, impact um, kind of unfolding, then all of those principles that seem you know, somewhat um, banal for some um, start to, you know, one has to start asking questions. Um, so the one I wanted to back to was the the intervention, right? So that it, it might it might sound like I mean one of the things I think is so interesting about your scholarship is that uh, it it would be easy, given all the things that you just said, to in a way demonize technology full stop, right? But you um, try to really I think occupy a much more nuanced and interesting space that recognizes the the ambivalence, the situatedness, the contextual importance of our technologies. And so uh, like as an intervention to make sure that we're not missing that piece, given kind of where the conversation has gone, how, what would you respond to? Like, well, should we just, technology is just bad. Technology right. is just bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, when I started reading on all of this, when I started graduate school, I learned about the Luddite movement. Um, and it was early enough in my studies and early enough in internet culture to know that, um, you know, Luddites aren't very popular. Um, um, But I think, um, and, you know, and even though I might personally be grumpy about certain uh, aspects of the digital world, when you look around, you have to admit that there are some really incredible things that our digital um, devices and services have provided right? Um, It's just not that hard to find good things coming out of it. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that, especially for people whose lives really have been transformed in really positive ways, you know, um, whether it's because they have in the past been marginalized and invisible and the social media and digital um, landscape uh, enables them to actually give voice to a very important perspective that we wouldn't normally hear. Um, 
or it allows people certain creative outlets, right, that are much more accessible now to, you know, the regular people and you don't need a massive studio and, and connections to be able to produce incredible content. So all of that's remarkable and, and lovely. Um, so that's part of why I think it's really important not to just demonize the technology. The second reason is I just don't think it's realistic for any of us to say, well, we're just going to chuck it all and go back to pre-internet. Like, that's not going to happen. And so the puzzle is really, well, how do we live with this, right? Um, how do we, in some ways it would be, quote unquote, easier to just chuck it because then you wouldn't have to work out the nuance and actually develop some kind of discernment in figuring out, okay, how am I responding to this technology, this system of technology, and is this actually moving me towards the kind of life that I think is worth living? Um, and I think for a lot of people, they're saying not so much. Uh, I want to get uh, to the practices part for sure, but before we um, before we get there, we've we've hinted at some of the like the theological frameworks that I think inform the work and can help maybe um, enliven the possibilities for kind of alternate visions, you know, the, the liturgies or counter liturgies, the uh, embodied incarnational sensibility, um, community and connection. These are some of the, we've been sort of coming around to some of these, but are there, which are the ones that really, I think you say, speak into the restlessness or as a provide an, an alternative or a hope filled kind of way to approach how we might do it differently? I think for a lot of us, um, when it comes to our digital habits and our practices, we feel trapped because the system is just too overwhelming. There's just too much email in my inbox. There's just too many, uh, too many articles to read, um, too many uh, must-read or must-watch videos. Um, and so I actually think that seeing our digital practices in terms of liturgy is actually uh, really generative because understanding the ways in which our habits and practices of all kinds are actually forming us, forming the kind of people we become, is a really, I think, intuitive assertion that, that we see. And so I usually like to explain this to my students um, who are athletes or musicians or artists, right? Like we, or, or, or you're a, a cook, right? There's so many aspects of our life that we understand how practices and habits shape us, right? Not just make us better athletes or musicians or artists, but they actually change, fundamentally change our capacity to see, to hear, to respond kinetically um, to what's happening around us. And so... Um, if we can take that understanding of liturgy and practice um, and apply it to these seemingly mundane, quote-unquote, neutral practices of checking our phones when we're waiting online um, or uh, scrolling through our email first thing in the morning, right? These seem like harmless sorts of like turning on the lights in the morning, like how is it different, Right. I think if we can start to see that, no, actually, we're engaging in practices that are by and by, through time, actually 
shaping how we understand the day, you know, from the moment we wake up or how we engage with space or the the people who are proximate to us. And there are all these sorts of unintended consequences um, and sometimes intended that, that we're actually living into. Um, and, you know, once or twice, it's, it's not a big deal. But when it's really just built in, especially because we see everyone around us doing it, so it seems really normal um, and actually, like, appropriate. You know, you, you, it feels almost lame not to be looking at your phone when you're at the checkout line, right? Um, and so I think um, there's something in thinking about those practices as liturgy and then um, I like to draw on Jamie Smith's work of thinking about counter liturgies, right? Whereas in our society, if we just inhabit the practices in a taken for granted, unreflective way, we engage in practices that may lead us away from the kingdom of God, what he calls secular liturgies. Um, what we need to consider as people of faith is what are the counter liturgies, right? That kind of actually push against the secular liturgies and fill us. Um, fill us with um, and move us towards a more right relationship with God and right relationship with place and space, right relationship with others and people around us. And again, it's not like it's a one-off or 30-day plan, right? It's There's these little small routines um, just like, you know, you grow up learning that you should brush your teeth in the morning, right? Um, and that, that leads to a lifelong good, uh, good of, of dental hygiene and less pain, right? Um, it's, it's like that. It's these really small habits that, that can go a long way in the end. I'm really struck in this, the, hearing you talk about the, the spaces where our digital practices are so formative. There, there are a lot of, like, in-between spaces. There are a lot of liminal spaces, right? The, to think about the, the checkout line or the like moment before you're fully conscious in the morning or that space right before you fall asleep. All of these like in between limit while you're waiting for your, this is a hypothetical one, right? Like when you're waiting for your kids to come out of baseball practice, right? These like in between spaces that are like the things that are blocked in the calendar. And then you have these in betweens and there's this like really rich Christian tradition to think about the holiness of liminal space, right? And then we don't, we, if, if, if they're in between, it seems like they're a nothing space. But if it's a liminal space, it's really held in a holiness, and we need to be attentive. It should have a liturgy, right? And digital practices can surely fill that. But it sounds like you're you're offering like a counter. Like, how is it we really re-inhabit that space, that time, as a kind of holy, holy space? Yeah, no, I like that. I need to read up on the theology of liminal spaces. That sounds amazing. Um, yeah, I think the way I've come at it has been, you know, so in the uh, pre-digital uh, calendars, I used to keep a weekly planner, um, one of those old-fashioned, you know, on paper kinds of things, and where I would literally block out sections of my day. And so I tend to think of the ways in which um, those sorts of what's called time management skills, right, um, this literally blocking out the, the the waking hours so that it seems like you should be it seems like you should color in every box right it, it, that that's what that that weekly planner led me to feel right that, that that a day that wasn't completely blocked out 
seemed kind of wasteful, right? I was being unproductive. And so I think the ways in which our understandings of these in-betweens, right, you know, really, in this sense, you know, it didn't start with the digital, right? There's this whole kind of ideology of, of time management and productivity that so much of the digital devices and services kind of uh, feed into and reinforce and reproduce and amplify. When we think about what the Christian faith actually teaches about how God shows up, um, or when we look at the ways in which Jesus lived his days, you find just this patchwork of interruptions and random moments and unexpected encounters, right? That you have to think, wow, uh, you know, back in the the biblical days, you know, um, if they had weekly planners, you know, they would have missed out on like half the Bible, right? Because <laughs> um, they would have been busy out in the fields, like harvesting or, or in the lake, you know, fishing, Um, and so I think there's just so much, um, you know, we talk about FOMO, fear of missing out in the digital world. I like to think of it more as like, well, what are, what could we be missing out in these liminal spaces that we are just completely preoccupied in, you know? Um, and I actually, you know, I for one want to know, like maybe I'm missing out on something completely exciting and delightful. Right. upturns the like the whole economy of waste and worth yes gets reimagined right it gets uh, overturned like where it is the uh, waste and worth show up yeah yeah so um, you have also some very practical suggestions about um, how to live into this live into this um, digital age and the in the book i know that it's that you've you've called it the freedom project which i think is also like the title restless devices uh, there's a lot packed into that as a choice for what to call it so before we hear the like some of the you know hot tips about how to really handle the digital age in this um, space that we're inhabiting can you say about the freedom project why is it the freedom project why are you calling it that so i call it the freedom project it actually started as a set of assignments for my students and I knew I needed to sell them on this. Um, yeah, I need to sell students on any assignments. Um, and so rather than uh, trying to persuade them to try some exercises and experiments that seem to be punishing them in any way, um, part of it was just me sitting down and thinking, well, what is what is the point of this, right? What is the point of... Um, these exercises that I'd like them to try. And and I came to thinking about um, the ways we think about freedom and how technology is often rendered as a means to freedom um, that, that enables us to be anyone and say anything and go anywhere. And, um, and, and in many ways that there is that kind of freedom, um, but that there is... I kind of started thinking about a deeper freedom, um, especially as many of us are tired. And, and I usually like to talk about the, the soft tyranny of our digital, right, that there's just this sort of nagging sense that we need to be somewhere, which is online, checking something, writing some email somewhere. 
um, that a lot of us would actually really love to be free of that nagging feeling. Um, But even deeper still, in the good news of Christianity, there's this promise of a much deeper freedom, freedom from our fears, um, freedom to be vulnerable, um, and this sense of, in the end of the days of our lives, you know, I think we all long to be in relationships where we are able to be free, to be ourselves completely and still discover that we're loved, right? Um, That's what we're all looking for. And so the Freedom Project, you know, that's a very high aspiration. We've gone all the way out to the ends of the limits of freedom there. Um, But the Freedom Project is just sort of like baby steps, right, of saying, hey, you know, let's go through a series of experiments is what I call them because they can just be tried once or twice. You don't have to sign up for two weeks uh, or 30 days on anything. And let's try these experiments and see if we can learn about um, ourselves, um, our propensities uh, towards certain compulsions in our digital lives, and try some new practices. Mm-hmm. It's like the seven-day free trial period, right? Yeah. Try it up. Try it out. Yeah, try it out. Um, well, okay, so which ones were, can you say a couple, like maybe like what's the, what's, what's it low-hanging fruit one? Like what's the easy one to try and where, like where does it get really sticky? Which ones have been really hard to take on um, on both sides of it? So the Freedom Project walks you through, um, there's, there's kind of an order. And so the beginning is just kind of becoming aware of our digital um, habits. And so actually I think the first one's actually the hardest um, and that's the digital fast. Um, and so that's asking um, someone to go without their digital for 24 hours just to see how it goes. Um, and that's just becoming aware of, oh, how anxious or how free do I actually feel? Um, and with my students, there's always this really interesting range. I can feel my heart racing, actually like imagining imagining it. So, uh, yep, that hits a nerve for sure. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think one can discover really unusual things, right? So many of my students discover that the things they feared the most actually don't manifest and the things they don't even think about, like driving in the car without their music – on is actually the most troubling and unsettling. So I think it's just the 24-hour the fast is just kind of a, a very illuminating exercise to, to try. And then after the first couple exercises and experiments, then when it comes to trying new habits, so if we're someone who is accustomed to having our phone next to us when we go to sleep within arm's length, what would it be like to just put it on the other side of the room, just a couple more feet out of reach so that if you wanted to look at it, you'd have to get out of bed, <laughs> right? Um, and, you know, if you're, if you're able to, if you're living in a place where there is more space, you can try even putting it even farther. Um, and so those are easy, not time-consuming types of exercises. Again, just to, I think of it as like trying to exercise a muscle, and maybe it takes several stages um, and discovering um, what we can do in those times um, and in those spaces where we are distancing ourselves from the pull of the digital. Um, and so there's, there's exercises and experiments that focus on place and spaces, right? Kind of 
creating a little more distance from the technology, um, encouraging protection of certain places like your bed or the dining table, right? Um, and then there are other kinds of exercises and experiments that focus on actually trying new habits, right? And so for there's one of them is, you know, for the f- last 15 minutes before you go to bed, find something different to do instead of scrolling on, on your phone, right? And, um, you know, it's, it's incredible to see what at least my students who have done it before they come up with, you know. Some of them end up journaling. Some of them rediscover their love of drawing. Um, some start actually playing music, like not listening to music, but picking up their guitar or whatever instrument they have. Some of them decide just to do 20 push-ups, right? <laughs> um, and they actually feel good about it. Um, and so I think it's, it's fascinating to see what people can come up with when they decide, oh, okay, well, I can't do that for my 15-minute kind of, you know, wind down. I'll find something else. So those are just some examples. I mean, the, the gains on all of that also seem palpable, right? And uh, you've also mentioned along the way, just as technology has its, has its you know, but good sides, benefits, undeniable good that have come out of it, there, there is some loss in this as well, right? So it is a, it is a freedom project and to be free too, but you, you, there is some loss as well that happens uh, in t- taking, up the, taking up the project. Do you want to speak into any of, yeah. any of that? Because it's not a naive it's not a naive invitation, right? That this is like a, an easy and it's not just fearful the things you'll, you'll come up against, but there, there's like a sense of, like there is loss, right? Because technology, it has this good and bad sides to it. The, the sense of loss is, is also real. It can look in, like really different things. Um, for some of us, not having the phone close by us, maybe we will miss a text or a call. That is timely. Um, and important. That might actually happen, right? And if that's not negotiable for us, then we need to, it might be worth thinking about, well, what does that mean that it's non-negotiable? And again, I think this is why thinking about all of this in terms of experiments is helpful because I don't think this is a one-size-fits-all sort of situation, you know, uh, depending on your circumstance. Um, you know, having uh, the capacity to, to be on call all the time might actually be a reality, you know, for some of us. But for many people, um, it, it's actually not. Um, missing that timely communication, um, maybe not being as, quote-unquote, productive as we feel like we ought to be um, might also be one of the costs. Um, here I think about one of the experiments, which is focusing on monotasking. So instead of doing uh, the multitasking that many of us are quite familiar with, the experiment encourages us to just do one thing. And so if you're doing house chores, you just do the house chore without listening to podcasts, without doing emails and texting or talking to a friend. And, and that practice is about um, really grounding ourselves in our bodies, in the places we are in, and the tasks that we are engaged in. Um, if we're driving, we're just driving. And uh, so we might end up with some, you know, house chores that aren't 
really done because <laughs> there's just a lot to do. Um, Folding or, towels might be a cost. Yeah, right. Or, or you know, um, or not getting to keep up with those phone conversations as much. Um, or if we're working on work-related items, you know, literally not being as productive, that might actually happen. Um, but I think it is giving ourselves um, the chance to just wonder and experiment with the possibility that there might be something actually more important in the long run um, that we need to develop in our own lives um, through trying on some of these experiments is, is what I think is, is the goal. So this is just a curiosity of mine, and uh, it comes out of my own church experience kind of growing up um, in the church where I would say that in a lot of the church spaces I have been, in a lot of the Christian spaces I have been, an experimental posture is not exactly this the norm, right? So, um, right, with such, I just think that that's such an, it's an interesting and creative and hopeful intervention, right, to to ask to ask Christians to take up an experimental posture, right? To really improvise and to to take to take it on uh, as maybe a playful invitation to tr- to try something, and you're not certain. You're not certain. There's going to be questions. All of that seems to me like a really interesting um, intervention into some of the spaces. And I'm wondering how 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 has the experimental invitation been received? Um, are you is um, is it being taken up kind of? joyfully like how does that posture feel in these spaces well that's a really good question um the only people that have had to take do the experiments are my students <laughs> so they in some ways they didn't have a choice um uh and you know it's it's a range um some students i'm sure are, are making up their responses <laughs> um and others um uh, and and some are honest about being grumpy about having to do the experiment and that's fair i i was quite grumpy about doing the experiments myself um and um but i think it is really aiming for just that that moment of possibility that I'm I'm interested in of, of of a kind of revelation that some students really do have, right? Um and to me that's worth it, right? Is to is to give someone, offer someone a chance to taste something that they otherwise would not have normally tried. Um because it is against the grain. You know, no it's not what they're seeing around them or around any of us. And so I think the the experiment is um, what I like about it is it's kind of low stakes. There isn't so much, and I reiterate this with my students. It's like there's not a sense of failure, right? Which I think, again, um, as you prefaced, you know, in the church that can often become part of the the traps of legalism, um, and so it's it's just. Um, an experiment of seeing what happens. And, and you know, some of us, we will respond badly to the experiment, but that isn't, that isn't, doesn't mean that we failed. It, if we actually notice that we responded badly and if we actually start wondering, oh, why did I respond badly and spend a little time reflecting on that, then that's a win. It's data. 
Yeah, and a non-finding, as we like to say in sociology, is a finding. And so there's always a finding <laughs> that is worthwhile if we're willing to observe and, and just be intentional, really. Well, it also seems like it offers, you know, there's an emotional liturgy, too, that has been named implicitly, right? The tiredness, the overwhelm, the anxiety, like there's a, there is a kind of emotional liturgy that comes along with a lot of the practice. And some of the experiments is offering a counter emotional liturgy, right? Like that it's possibility or hopeful or playfulness. Um, and the way that it speaks into the, this alternative, I think is really, um, right? It feels, it, it models the kind of embodiedness um, that's part of the conversation. Um, so I'm wondering if you, you should definitely have the final word here. So if there's, if there's like one thing you know, maybe you have been listening to the podcast and folding laundry and checking your email and all the all of the other things that a multitasking uh, podcast would allow you to do. If at the end you, there was one thing you would hope that was heard um, as a kind of final word, um, if you like the one thing not to miss out of the, the conversation here, is there a final or sending word that you'd hope really was heard? I would hope that the listener comes away with a, with a sense of hope that there is actually a way to start reforming our daily lives to, to move it incrementally so that we're living the lives and becoming the kind of people that we want to be or that we profess um, to desire and that it doesn't mean that we have to throw out everything and quit our jobs and um, be the Luddite and the strange person in the room. They could be really small adjustments that can produce a lot of joy and through time ground us in ways that open our eyes to see um, what we hadn't seen before and what we really long to see, right, in our creation around us, in the people around us, um, and in our experience of who God is. So I think there is a lot of hope to be had um, if we can kind of widen our lens and, and see um, this digital quandary that we're in as, as something we can engage. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.